Well, in my house, on one of the walls, hangs a cross-stitched picture of the alphabet. And you might think, that's a strange thing to hang up on one of your walls, especially when you look at it. It's old and faded, and quite honestly, it's not my idea of fine art. But its value isn't found in its beauty or what we might be able to get for it on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. My wife cherishes it because of who made it. It was made by her great-great-great-grandmother, Margaret French, in Scotland in 1841. And for Andrea, having something that connects her to her history that has survived wars and crossing continents and being passed down from one generation to another, this is important because it not only connects her with her past, but it is also, it reminds her of who she is today. And this is true for each of us. Our history is important. The history of your family for generations not only has an impact on who you are today, but, on who's, but also on who you'll be tomorrow. Whether you like it or not, history is not just history. It's not just in the past. It has present-day significance. And this concept that our history is relevant to our present lives is became clear to me as a 12-year-old who was collecting comic books, superhero comic books, in particular Batman comic books, because Batman is the best superhero. And superhero comic books always tell you an origin story, the account of past events which led to the superhero to becoming who they are. It tells you why they do what they do. And these origin stories usually tell you about how they got their powers, if they have superhero powers, but the best ones don't need powers, right? But more importantly, the origin story tells you how they got started on their quest or their crusade. The origin story, it makes them who they are today and it compels them to live as they do. Enter the book of Genesis. For followers of God, the book of Genesis is more than just the first book of the Bible. It is foundational for understanding the whole story of Scripture, including the Gospels of Jesus. It's also for un- foundational for understanding your story, and for me, for understanding my story. It is the origin story of the world around us and this whole universe. And like any origin story, it not only tells us how things started but it tells us why God did it and what is the purpose and what is his mission. And that's what the word Genesis means, origins. And so for the next while, we're going to be in a series looking at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, the original origin story. And so today we are beginning with Genesis chapter 1, which tells us, that what God makes has great worth. What God makes has great worth. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, 
let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the waters under the vault from the waters above it, and it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation Plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the, sky, in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he also made stars and God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the waters teem and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds increase on the earth, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and in the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. And they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating he had done. And this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord made the earth and the heavens. This is the word of the Lord. Now for many of us, This story is very familiar. We've either read it or we've heard it before. But despite its familiarity, perhaps we haven't thought too deeply about it and what it actually means. Because it seems on face value that this story is just telling us about how God created the world. Now this seems to contradict a lot of what we hear from other sources, like perhaps some science textbooks about how the earth was made. But maybe... Maybe this story is less about the details of how and more about who and why. Now, some of us might be getting a little uncomfortable in our seats right now, so let me rest assured, I love you and so does the Lord and it's going to be okay. There are always two things that we need to keep in the forefront of our minds whenever we are reading scripture in order to understand it as best that we can. And these are two things that help us to understand all stories better. These two things are literary genre and context. So first of all, when it comes to literary genre, most of us have studied this in some form when we were in school, whether elementary, high school, or university. And we understand the difference between the genres, such as drama and poetry and folktale, when it's fiction or nonfiction. And we understand that recognizing a writing's genre is critical to understanding the author's intention. I'll say that again. Recognizing a writing's genre is critical to understanding an author's intention. Now, most of us would say, Nonfiction, that's true, and fiction, that's make-believe. And then when it comes to like drama and poetry and folktales, well, those can be somewhere in between. Well, what does this all have to do with Genesis 1? Well, what if I were to tell you that Genesis 1 wasn't written like a historical textbook? That it was more written more like a poem or a song? And that when we read it in its original Hebrew, scholars recognize different things that make it stand out like a song, like different stanzas or intentionally repeated words and phrases, even sentences that rhyme in the original language. This should have an impact on how we read and understand this text, but not necessarily, you know, whether it's true or not. Right? There are a lot of poems and songs that retell true events from the past and in fact do a much better job than some history books do. Let's also pause for a moment and ask ourselves this question when it comes to literature. Right? Does something have to have literally happened for the story to be significant or have profound truth in it? Does a story have to have literally happened for it to be profoundly significant or have truth in it? Now, in some cases, we would say absolutely it does, right? 
When my doctor tells me that she is qualified to look after my health because she has gone to medical school, I tell you, her story, it better line up with what actually took place. But in other cases, I think we would all agree that no, a story doesn't actually have had to happen for it to be true and profoundly profitable for our lives. Take, for example, the many parables that Jesus tells in his Gospels. None of these are verifiable whether they happened or not, whether it's the story of the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. However, the truths in these stories have not only changed lives like mine and many of yours, but they have shaped entire societies. And so we cannot discount something as truth just because it's not a verifiable fact found in a historical or science textbook. Speaking of which, when I went to college and I signed up for a geography class in the syllabus, it required me to buy the textbook, a specific textbook. It was the revised version of the textbook. In fact, it was the fifth edition. And do you know why they keep revising history and science textbooks? Well, one of the reasons why they do this is that they often have recent discoveries that shed new light or insight on how they interpreted things previously. They discovered that they were incorrect earlier and the new insights have caused thoughts and beliefs to change. And you know what else? The same thing happens in theology. Whether it's through archeology span or cultural studies or greater insights into ancient history, the church has benefited greatly and grown in our understanding of God's message in the scriptures. But along with this must come a recognition that our earlier understandings have sometimes been incorrect. And so, Each of us needs to approach these sacred texts with a humble posture. They are our guide. It is authoritative for our lives. Yet at the same time, we need to recognize that this ancient text was written in a distant time and a culture very different from our own, which often makes the scriptures incredibly difficult for us to understand Yet we believe that they were given to us by God who by his Holy Spirit gives us insight and understanding. And though God's word is always good and always true and always correct, we're not. We are fallible. We don't always know what is true and we must always be open to correction. And that's why We also need to understand a text genre, that it is essential to understanding its message. And most conservative, orthodox biblical scholars today agree that these first verses found in the opening pages of the Bible are a song or a poem. It can be difficult for us to see this in our English translations of the Bible, but there are some parts where it kind of begins to shine through. And one of those places is when we look at days one through three, and we see that there are parallels drawn in days four to six. So on the slide, there should be a little arrow coming up. There we go. Thank you. That's awesome. So we see in day one, where God creates the light and separates the darkness from the light. However, it is not until day four 
that God puts the sun in the sky for the day and the moon and the stars for the night in order to govern and to rule the day and the night. We see all across the first three days what God is doing. He is creating a space or a habitat, right? And then in the parallel day underneath, he creates the things that will occupy and rule that space. The fact that the light is shining down on the earth on day one, but the sun has not been created until day four, perhaps that is another hint that the genre of this account isn't a strict chronology of how this world was made. We see in day two that God separates the water and makes the sky above and the waters below. And then the parallel in day four or five, God creates the birds in the air and the sea creatures in the water to occupy and to rule those realms. And then in day three, God creates the dry land and also the trees with the fruits and the veggies. And in the parallel, day six, God creates animals for the land. And as a bonus, he creates humanity. And we'll touch more on humanity in a bit, but he creates them to occupy and to rule the land. Now this song of creation, it was reminding me of a time where I was reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my son Oliver when he was, I don't even think he was five years old at the time, and we were reading the story, the magician's nephew in there, and in that story there's these two kids, Diggory and Polly, and they slip from this realm called the woods between the worlds into the land of Narnia before Narnia was even created, and all there was was Darkness and black covered the entire land. And these children, they witnessed the creation of this new world, right? When they see the great lion Aslan, who brings the stars and the plants and the animals into existence as he sings. And I remember as I was reading about this lion singing and creating everything with his powerful voice, Oliver couldn't contain himself, and he shakes me. He's like, Daddy, Daddy, that's just like when Jesus spoke the world into being. And I'm like, yes, it is, son. It's exactly what it's like. It's exactly what it's like. The Apostle John, he says in 1 John, he says, In the beginning was the Word. That's his nickname for Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So we don't know the exact details of how God created the cosmos, because none of us were there. But we know the entire universe was made by God through his word, and as John says, that word is Jesus. Now perhaps seeing these parallels and hearing that this is, this is like poetry or song, this might cause, you know, allow us some space to recognize that maybe there is something more going on here than just telling us how God made it all. And that would lead me to the second thing I said that was crucial for understanding this passage, and that was context, right? Literary genre and context. Context is about who are the people that this account was written to. What's their story? And what does the author want them to know? 
You see, this account wasn't first written to us. It's not written to people in Canada in 2023. This, the people to whom this account was written to were the ancient Israelites. And you may recall that they were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And while they were in Egypt, they learned all about the Egyptian gods. And they heard all the Egyptian creation stories. And this caused the Israelites to believe a lot of things about themselves and the world around them through that particular lens. You see, that's what our origin stories do for us. We look at this world and we even look at ourselves through that lens. And in most of those ancient Near Eastern creation stories, the world was made by accident. It was through chaos and violence, and those legends tell us that the sun, moon, and stars, they're, they're gods themselves. And they're so huge that they barely even take notice of human beings, who are mostly an annoyance, because they're too busy warring amongst themselves. And in many of these legends, the earth comes about because one god defeats another, usually slicing them apart. And the happy accident is that somehow this world and all the creatures and the humans, they spill out of this dead god's remains. This is the sort of story that the world we inhabit came about by chance. It's not only the same story we hear from Egyptian and Babylonian and Roman and Greek mythology. It's the same story we sometimes hear from different sources today, right? The, the sort of story that, you know, that somehow through the chaos and the random chance, we just happened to luck out that everything just fell into place the way it did and we only, we only exist as a result of an accident without any purpose or intentional design. You see, this is what many Christians find so objectionable about evolution. And though I'm not going to talk much about evolution in this message, let me just say that there are many theories of evolution, not just one. And not all of them believe that the world was created by chance. You see, there are brilliant, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian evolutionists who see God's hand intentionally guiding the entire creation process. And whatever we may believe about how the world was made, this is not something we divide over. Let me say that again. No matter what we believe about how this world was made, this is not something that we divide over. You see, affirming a literal 24-hour, seven-day creation is not the litmus test for true faith. Believing that Jesus died for our sins, defeated death by his resurrection, and trusting him as the Lord of our lives, that's the litmus test for faith. But whether you believe in a literal seven-day creation or that God lovingly crafted his world over millions of years, either way, you are welcome here. But how God did it is not the point of this message, and I don't believe that it is the point of this passage either. Remember how I said at the beginning of the message a superhero's origin story tells us how the superhero became who they are and why they do what they do. Well, that is exactly what this origin story intends to do for us. Actually, more specifically, intends to do for those ancient Israelites whom this story was written to. 
to tell them who God is, to tell them why he did what he did, but also to tell them who they are and to tell them why they should live according to his ways. You see, when we listen to the stories that tell us that this was all just some big fluke, that we just happened by chance, that not only says something about the world, but that suggests something about who we are. The types of stories that tell us were insignificant. They say that we weren't made with purpose or with intentionality, and that the only significance that we have is what we make of ourselves in the here and now because we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. Can you imagine how that kind of a story would impact those Israelites? How it would have them feeling about their self-worth? You see, they were slaves. And according to Egyptian lore, even regular human beings were insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But what about slaves? They were even less than that. They were worthless because they could never make anything of themselves. And so they were accidents to begin with and good for nothings to the end. But that's where this creation account from the Bible differs significantly from these ancient creation stories and even from some of the modern ones. Genesis 1 tells us that none of this is an accident that it's not random or by chance, but everything in creation was made with care and purpose and love. The story told the Israelites that the God who made this world did it on purpose, not out of violence or by accident, but by intentionally speaking, or better yet, singing it into existence. Because you sing about those things that you love. And our God loves this world. It also says that God took his sweet time making it. The text describes God creating this world in seven yom. Yom is the Hebrew word translated by our Bibles as days, but yom can also be translated as period of time. And so God certainly could have done it in seven days. He could have done it in seven seconds had he wanted to or taken millions of years to complete his creation. But remember, this story is a song, as Daryl Johnson points out. It's a song full of sevens. And seven is a very special number in the Bible. It means complete. And there are sevens all over this account that we don't see in our English versions that if we were to read it in Hebrew, we would see. In verse one, there are seven words. In verse 2, there are two groups of seven words. In the section about the seventh day, there are five groups made of seven words. God is mentioned seven times. Heaven is mentioned times. How many times do you think earth was mentioned? Yeah, seven times. And then finally, there's this phrase where God evaluates everything he has created. And he says it's good. Seven times. Completely good. Johnson goes on to say, the thing about these days and all these sevens is a way of saying that however the creator did it, he did it in his own perfect time. 
carefully, intentionally, methodically. He enjoyed making it, and he made it good. There are no mistakes here. There was no conflict. There was no fight, because the story tells us that our God is supreme. He is the one creator God above all else, and yet he cares for his creation, unlike those ancient Near Eastern gods who could care less about humans, or they had this need to be appeased. And unlike present-day atheists who tell us that we're alone, this account tells us that we have a creator God who intimately cares. And each time God makes something in this account, it tells us something about that thing that he made. That it was created intentionally, it was given a purpose, and it is cared for because the God of the universe thinks that it's good. Each time he makes something, he says, He saw it was good. And that's one of the major points of this story, that what God makes has great worth. It has great worth because God, who is the ultimate good, he made it. And because he looks at it and he says, it's good. So God bestows goodness upon it. And the one thing that stands out amongst the rest of all all of creation in this story is us, humans. In verse 26 and 27 of Genesis 1, it says that the humans were made in God's image and likeness. Oh, that's huge. We're made in his image and his likeness. What does that even mean to be made in God's image and likeness? Certainly it doesn't mean that we're all powerful or all knowing like God. Some people think this is referring to the fact that we can think and have free will that differentiates us from the animals. And maybe it has something to do with those things. But we need to remember the context. What would the first people who received this story have thought that that meant? What would ancient Israelites would have thought? You see, in their time, A ruler or a king would set up an image of themselves in a land that they ruled to remind the inhabitants of that land who was in charge. It was an image of themselves. And the image was not in charge, right? It it wasn't the king itself, but it represented the king, reminding everybody in the land of his sovereignty. And in the Ten Commandments, the Israelites, they're told never to make an image of God. You want to know why? One of the reasons is he's already done it. That women and men are already God's image. Right? We are not God ourselves. But like the statue that a king sets up to represent and remind people of who is really in charge, you and I are to be representatives and reminders in this world of who is ultimately sovereign over everything. Yahweh. And this is why humans are then given the task to care and rule over things, like the animals and the land, not because we're supreme, but as his representatives here on earth, we care for what God created because what God has created has great worth. And if the God who made the stars and called them good, and he he made the mountains and the streams and the fish and the animals, and said that they were good because he made them, then this part of the story, 
where he makes humans and says that they're made in his image and in his likeness and that they are good, this just would have blown those ancient Israelites' minds. Should blow our minds too. See, the story that they were told and were tempted to believe as slaves in Egypt was that they were just an accident and insignificant and worthless. But now they are being told that they were made with purpose, that their value is not in what they achieve. It's not in who they become. Rather, right from the beginning, each human being has been made in God's image. And if what God makes has great worth, then he is telling them that they have incredible value. And that goes for every single human being ever created. And that's true of you. You have incredible worth. And yet many of us don't know that or we struggle to believe it. We're surrounded by messages today that we're not successful unless we obtain certain standards of beauty or wealth, status or education. Or we hear criticism and it's hard for us not to believe what others say about us or perhaps what they're not saying about us. You know, I've said several times in this message that how important our origin stories are, that they, they give us worth, they help us to see the world through a certain lens and see ourselves through a certain lens. Like my boys, it's funny that they love to, talk, to ask Andrea and I questions about their origins, right? About like when we started dating or how I asked Andrea to marry me, what it was like when we found out that we were pregnant with one of them or when we brought them home from the hospital, right? They love hearing those stories because this gives them value and it's, it shapes the lens which they see the world and themselves through. You know, my mother, she didn't know her true origin story. She grew up being told, you know, like, these are your parents, your, this is who your father is, but her parents always avoided talking about, about her her origins about like how they felt when they discovered they were pregnant or what it was like when they brought her home from the hospital and they always just kind of changed the subject they refused to talk about it and she just was curious about these things but she tried not to dwell on it but then one day when she was an adult when she was already married with children of her own a relative told her that none of it was true and that her mother, my grandmother, had already been pregnant with my mom before she arrived in Canada, and before she had met my grandfather. You can imagine how shocking this news would come to my mom, and to make matters worse, when she asked her parents about it, they said, yes, that's true, but they refused to tell her any of the details about her biological father or the circumstances around the pregnancy. And then to make matters worse, my grandmother took her aside and made her promise not to tell anyone about this, especially her children, my brothers and me. Can you imagine... The message that this conveys to a child, even an adult child, when a parent refuses to speak to them about their history and tells them to keep silent about it to others. This brings feelings of shame and insecurity, a lack of self-worth. 
This week, I was on the phone with my mom and talking about this message, and, and we're talking about her own story, and she gave me permission to share this with you, and you know, my mom's going to listen to the sermon, so I want to honor you, mom, and thank you for letting me share this, because I think it's important. You know, what's amazing to me is that she has not allowed the chaos and uncertainty around her, her origin story to define her or her worth. In fact, she shares her stories with others, like two of her granddaughters who have been adopted to help them and all of us remember that we have an origin story that goes much further back than our birth or conception stories. My mom on the phone said to me, I may not know who my biological father was, but I have a father in heaven. Exactly. We have a father in heaven. She has a father in heaven who loves her, who intentionally made her, and what our God and father in heaven makes has great worth. You see, at some point in our lives, most of us will have an experience of some kind of rejection and shame. I grew up in a loving home, so it wasn't there. For me, it was in high school where I experienced that kind of rejection, and I was tempted to believe that I had little value or worth by the stories that other people were telling about me. But regardless of what others say about us, or even what we may think about ourselves, Genesis 1, it it counteracts those stories. It says the same thing to you and I that it said to those ancient Israelites and that it says to my mom. It says, you are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You are not your failures. You're not even your successes, right? You were made by a good God with value and worth and dignity. And God not only values his creation, he loves it. This God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you so that you could be reunited with him for all eternity. So no matter what story about yourself that you struggle with, I want you to know, and more importantly, God wants you to know that you have great worth and that you are loved. There is so much more to this Genesis 1 story than we're able to cover in one sermon. So guess what we're going to be talking about next week? Yeah. But as we go from here today, I want us to remember that one part that we're made in his image, which means that we are his representatives. So being his representatives means that we are to do our best to act like God would towards the rest of his creation. We are to do our best to act like God would act towards the rest of his creation by blessing it, by helping it to flourish and to thrive. So this means we need to see the value in all of this creation just as God saw it and proclaimed it was good. We need to do that and we need to love just as God loves us. So it means we need to care for this earth and all the creation that lives in this earth. And it means we need to care especially for other human beings who are also made in God's image. My hope is that our church, that we will be the safest of communities where you and everyone and anybody else who comes 
and gathers with us will feel welcome and valued and love and that we will show them that they have great worth. And this would be my challenge for each one of us as his representatives, as someone made in his image, how will we go out from here and show others and this world that they have great value too? That's the question for us. How are we to go from here and show this world that it has great value too? Maybe it starts in your home by serving a family member or a neighbor. Perhaps it's here in church where you forgive someone. Maybe it's not being angry with the pastor because he didn't support your specific view on creation. I don't know, I'm just saying. However you do it, we are to help this world to flourish by showing love. That is our job. And that's when we are being most like God. And that is when we are being the best versions of what it means to be human. By helping this world to flourish. By showing love to others. This is when we find our worth in God. And what he makes has great worth.